BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod with another special holiday edition. You know, last week we took another look at two books dealing with the destruction of the Republican Party. Well, today we look again at two books, these books about Donald Trump, the man who ultimately destroyed the Republican Party. And they are, I believe, the best two books about the Trump presidency. A little later, The Confidence Man by New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman. But first, The Divider by husband and wife team Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter with The New York Times and Susan with New Yorker magazine. From the front lines in the 2016 Trump campaign to front row in the Trump White House, Peter and Susan were with Trump all the way to the day that he sent an armed mob to storm the United States Capitol. It's a powerful story that they tell. Susan Glasser, Peter Baker, thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod and welcome. Thanks for having us, Bill. It's good to talk to you. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Well, and I have to say congratulations on your new book, The Divider. It, it really is. Uh, first of all, I think it's a culmination of the great reporting both of you have done uh, about the Trump presidency over the last four years. Uh, it's really a masterpiece of journalism. I was amazed that having lived through this and covered it and wrote and talked about it myself, I still learned a hell of a lot about the Trump presidency from your book. So, so really good. So, Susan, let me start with you. I guess it's safe to say um, that never in our history have we had a presidency that came anywhere close to the Trump presidency. <laughs> Look, uh, you know, we've had all kinds of, you know, liars and, and, and charlatans uh, in public office, of course, in, right. in the American experience. But Donald Trump is an outlier in so many ways. And, and of course, it's in that catastrophic ending to the Trump presidency that you, you see that most clearly, uh, which is to say he's the only president in American history who has refused to accept the results of an election and has actually sought to overturn a legitimate election, defying the Constitution. That's never happened before. But I think when Peter and I set out to write The Divider, part of it was to not just focus on this culmination, this, this violent, awful culmination of the Trump presidency, but to, to make the case that this was almost the, the inexorable conclusion, an inevitable conclusion of this four-year war that Trump had waged on American institutions. Well, uh, in fact, that is um, the very first sentence of the book, which I found uh, just about the most important sentence of the book, right? Um, that what happened, as you, you point out, uh, eventually on January 6th, wasn't just um, some aberration, right, uh, Peter? It was 
we could have foreseen it, I guess, from the way the whole Trump presidency was carried out, was laid out, and that this was the, to use your phrase again, the inexorable combination. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, that's the, that's the important thing that this we were building to this moment the entire time. Yeah, uh, four year war on institutions and norms and traditions, and that and so no other book has tried to do what we try to do here is to explain January sixth not just in the context of the moment, but in the context of the entire presidency. And we should have probably, you know, a lot of people did see it coming, but I think even then it was hard to believe that it was possible that 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 you could have somebody who was so uh, immune to the you know the standards and the, un, the 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 norms and the beliefs of a system that we've had now for a couple hundred years, but that's that's where we were. So by the time January sixth happens, we we should have all uh, understood it was coming. Partly because he told us it was coming, and and even without the inside information that this book provides, you know he was fairly transparent. He said as early as May of twenty twenty he wouldn't accept any election result other than a victory, and if it was a defeat for him, that meant it was rigged. So he telegraphed very early on. Uh, what his plan was, and and again, every step along the way of his presidency, you could see in some way or another how he was setting this up. Uh, and it's pretty clear, uh, I thought, that there were two characteristics of the Trump presidency, which you come back to time and time again in the book. One of them, Susan, uh, zero regard for the truth. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, I, that that is a fair statement, really. This is a president, after all, who uh, I think the Washington Post assessed more than thirty thousand times in the course of his presidency that yep. he made yep. misleading or otherwise uh, untruthful statements. But it's more than that. I mean, it's 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 a kind of lying as pathology. That is so extraordinary. Again, we've had liars as presidents before. Uh, it's 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 the it's the commingling of a fantastical array of untruths that really sets Donald Trump apart. We experienced that ourselves in the two different interviews we conducted with Trump for this book yeah. over three three and a half hours. Uh, at times, he was contradicting himself, even in 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 the same sentence within seconds of each other. He told us uh, at one point that the Secret Service had stopped him from going up to the Capitol mm -hmm, with his mm -hmm. crowd on January 6th. Then like 90 seconds later, he said, no, no, I never asked the Secret Service. And then seconds after that, I said, well, actually, they stopped me from going. Uh, how do you even, what's to believe, what's not to believe with Donald Trump? It's, um, it's a pathology with him. Uh, yeah, uh, you uh, mentioned, uh, I think it's your second interview with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, where he started out with another big lie uh, about a COVID vaccine ad. Peter, right. tell us that story. Yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, when we first went to see him was a few months into the Biden presidency when everybody was sort of, uh, you know, taking the vaccine, but a lot of his own supporters were reluctant or skeptical. And we asked him, would you do, you know, a public service announcement to tell them that you think this is a good thing since he took it and he, uh, you know, claimed credit for it. And he said, yeah, yeah, the Biden administration asked him to do that. And he was thinking about doing it. So, okay. Seven months later, fast forward, we go back for our next interview and he'd never done a PSA. So we asked him, well, whatever happened to that PSA you were going to do for a vaccine? Why don't you talk to <laughs> how well, you were the ones who told us. So, you know, it was, it was a remarkable thing. Was he lying the first time or was he lying the second time? Or did he just forget or is he just living in a different reality? I mean, this goes to the heart in a way of both two things. One, his, you know, his 
as you say, tenuous uh, relationship to the fruit. And the question of whether he's lying, he knows he's lying, or he just uh, he just gets you know caught up in these reality bending experiences. Or the second part is though how he's captive to his own base. He was afraid of getting too mm. associated with something that he could have bragged about as his biggest accomplishment because right. his base was mad at him. They even booed him at a rally about it. So suddenly, instead of being a leader of his base, he's a he's a he's a he's a follower. Uh, Susan, there are a lot of words that I have used, and a lot of words I've heard other people use to dis- to describe Donald Trump. Uh, of all the many words that one could use, some of them unprintable. Why did you decide on the two of you on the divider? You know, we were looking for something that really expressed something about Trump as a person as well as a political figure, in part because he created this remarkable cult of personality around himself. Uh, And the story of Trump in the White House that we are attempting to tell is both the story of a politician, but also a guy. And what's remarkable is that Donald Trump is a divider in his personal interactions with people. It's his personal philosophy of how to get ahead in the world. And it's his political recipe for success as well. So it just, it had the the effect of drawing together so many different uh, themes around Trump in the White House. Donald Trump uh, divided his own family. He divided his staff members against each other. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, that's literally his management philosophy uh, <laughs> is, is divide and conquer. And you saw that in the constant toxic infighting of his aides and his family members. This was something that was encouraged by Trump. He had an almost gladiatorial view of life in the Oval Office. He wanted people to fight it out in front of him. He, of course, encouraged the political combat instincts of institutional Washington as well. Whenever there was a chance uh, to double down on something that was divisive or controversial, Trump would take that chance. He was never going to pull the country together. And also that's what makes him stand out compared with all of the other presidents of our modern recent memory. Uh, They may not always have succeeded, uh, but they all aspired to unite the country. They saw that as part of the role of being the president. George W. Bush actually literally spoke of being a uniter, not a divider. Barack Obama said there is not a blue America and a red America. There Mm -hmm. is a United States of America. Uh, Bill Clinton talked about his goal of being the repairer of the breach, the breach being the partisan breach in the country. And, And again, of course, they fell short, but that was what they saw as fundamentally the role of the president. Contrast that with Donald Trump and his message in his inaugural address of American <laughs> carnage. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, that was a time when um, some journalists, but a lot of politicians were saying, well, yeah, he was a divider during the campaign. But once he gets to the White House, man, right, he's going to do like other presidents and want to bring everybody together. As you point out, that hope disappeared <laughs> In the inaugural address, didn't it? Pretty, pretty quickly. That's right. Well, I, think, look, I think there was a you know a not irrational hope that he would be something different than he presented on the campaign trail because he wasn't somebody who was rooted in particularly ideological terms. He wasn't a 
partisan in the past because he'd been a member of every political party multiple <laughs> times, right? He switched yeah. parties five times. He was pro-abortion rights before he was against abortion, pro-gun control until he was against gun control, pro-higher taxes on the rich before he was for lower taxes on the rich. So he had such an ideological flexibility that there was this hope that, okay, fine, he's from New York. He's not like a you know, hard rock, hard Republican conservative. He'll be willing to deal with people across the aisle because he had to do that as a builder uh, in a Democratic city. But that proved to be wrong, that in fact, he had decided to throw his lot in with the right wing of his party, because that's where he saw the people who were most uh, faithful and loyal to him. And he decided on a base only strategy, basically, for the rest of his presidency. Does he believe in anything, Susan? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he believes in Donald Trump. He has, in fact, great, great confidence in Donald Trump. Right. Now, it, it, I mean, again, I kept looking, looking for that, um, uh, for his core beliefs. Uh, I, I never, I never found them. Maybe you can help me out. The other thing that struck me. So maybe if he doesn't believe anything, he doesn't know a lot either. I mean, I, as early as page five in your book, uh, right? I, th- I found this paragraph. If I can read just a little bit of it about Donald Trump, what he did not know. He did not know that Puerto Rico was part of the United States did not know whether Colombia was in North America or South America, thought Finland was part of Russia, mixed up the Baltics with the Balkans. He seemed, gen- I'm just jumping, he seemed generally surprised to learn that Abraham Lincoln had been a member of the Republican Party. Well, it's, I- it's astounding what basic stuff he didn't know. You know, I have to admit that is actually one of my very favorite paragraphs in the book. So, <laughs> so thank you for for that uh, dramatic rendering of it. Um, you know, the thing is, that, by the way, he not only confused the Baltics and the Balkans, he did so in a meeting with the leaders of the Baltics <laughs> for maximal insult. Uh, it, but it's not just ignorance. We have had American presidents who didn't know stuff. Uh, Bill Clinton was never really comfortable with foreign affairs till well into his second term. Barack Obama uh, was a very junior senator who had very little Washington experience under his belt. Uh, you can read briefing papers. You can learn stuff, although, of course, Trump was famously uninterested in in hearing briefings, never mind reading them. The difference is that Trump was so arrogant. Uh, he didn't care. It mm. wasn't just that he was ignorant. It's that he believed it didn't matter. Uh, and that expertise uh, was something to be devalued and dismissed because he was the expert on literally everything. Uh, you know, Peter was there at the CDC in the beginning of the pandemic where Donald Trump actually said, well, he knew a lot about medicine because his uncle had yeah, been yeah. a professor at MIT. MIT. That way, he wasn't even a professor of <laughs> His uncle was a professor of physics. <laughs> uh, you also offer some insights into Donald Trump, the person, which I found um, humorous and interesting. Uh, he, his obsession, among other things, with his own personal image, uh, with uh, whenever photos were taken, you know how the the what angle was ta- was shot and the lighting, getting the lighting right, and everything. Is, is that 
the television producer in him, Peter? Yeah, it's all about creating an image. It's all about creating the mythology of the great man, right? He was fixated on lighting. He would he would correct, you know, TV people when they came for interviews and say, no, you want to put the lighting here. He would look at the iPads to look at what the lighting looked like before he began an interview. He, he His very first day, he comes into the Oval Office, and the first thing he says is not, wow, this is a place where great decisions were made, or wow, this is a place where yeah. FDR or Reagan or JFK were. He, his first thing he says in there, how did they get the lighting to do that? And it was an obsession of his. But it's it's again, it's all part of this idea that he liked to promote, that he was a great man, so much so that it was, you know, he was never um, – uh, it allowed, he never admitted any kind of weakness. At one point, one of his aides said, you know, the president looks a little tired. And she was corrected by another aide saying, no, Donald Trump is never sick and he is never tired. And that's part of his, you know, mythology that he likes to create a function over the 14 years of the, uh, of the apprentice when he created a, uh, you know, a, a, f- a figure that didn't actually match reality, but that was the way he succeeded in, in entertainment and the way he succeeded at politics. Now, I must say, one thing you do in your book, which I've not seen anywhere else, is you detail how Donald Trump fixes his hair every day, which I have wondered about as every time I see him, uh, how long it takes and what, what the process is. Susan, do you care to <laughs> spell it out? It's pretty detailed and pretty a long time getting that hair just right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's what's actually kind of remarkable, given the results. I you know this would be such a not only is it labor intensive, but it's very striking that Donald Trump didn't trust anybody else to do his hair. That he's doing this remarkable operation on himself, including to the point of using almost cartoonishly oversized scissors to to you know the kind you use at shopping mall, you know, ribbon cuttings to cut his own hair. And and often you notice it gets a little bit long uh, and he has that sort of aging rocker, you know, Almond Brothers kind of feel to it. But, you know, the, the amount of hairspray, there was a very specific kind of hairspray uh, that his personal aide had to carry around everywhere with him. Uh, you know, wherever Donald Trump went, uh, you know, he does this sort of elaborate comb over slash flip uh, yeah. In order to obscure the the thinning thing, the coloring. I mean, it's all what's amazing again from a man who is such a so obsessed with image that he would put all this effort into something to come up with something that looks so bad. <laughs> yeah, as as I recall from reading this, I mean, what you describe, it all has to go forward, right first, and then. Some up of the side, one side, and then it flops back. I don't know. It's a three-way process, as I recall. But well, that's uh, right. And the, the flip is very important yeah. because if you don't get it right, then it all sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, droops and looks um, really, really scary. Peter Susan said something earlier about the distrust uh, as a divider that was uh, inherent among the Trump team. Um, I remember those early days too. Uh, you and I were both there in the briefing room. I mean, the White House, that certainly the early White House, was really a nest of scorpions, wasn't it, among the staff? Um, nobody trusted each other. They were leaking against each other um, and plotting against each other. Oh, uh, literally, exactly. You're exactly right. We And, you know, as you write, you rightly say, we knew this at the time, but in going back and doing more reporting after he left office, which is what we did for this book. You know, all of the stuff that came 
that's new in the book is come from reporting done after he left office when people were more willing finally to talk a little more candidly. What you learn is that it was even worse than we thought we knew at the time, right? People would do job interviews and literally interview the person, okay, I need you to be on my team if you come work at the White House. You know, whose team are you going to be on? It's usually not that open, even in other White Houses that have had famously fractious staffs for us hiring person, a chief of staff or a chief strategist or counselor to say, I'm going to hire you, but only if you help me defeat other people on the staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, he really divided that. And also you, you, you report that um, some of the staffers, the people that were most afraid of what Trump might do, I guess, not knowing much or the risks he was willing to take, were the people who worked for him, the people who were closest to him. They, and at some points, they even were plotting against him to prevent him from taking some of the actions that he wanted to take, Susan? Yeah. I mean, Bill, this is a very important point. The testimony here is coming from inside the room. Right. Yeah. Right. The phone call is coming from inside the room, as the <laughs> the horror movie analogy would, would, would have it. And, you know, the people that we spoke with, by and large, uh, were Trump appointees, Trump officials, most of them Republicans or uh, nonpartisan government employees who worked and were promoted by Donald Trump. And, you know, they're the ones who emerged in successive waves from this very high turnover administration with these alarming stories to tell about uh, what the president of the United States was up to. And in in a, a long career in Washington, both Peter and I have spent, you know, the last three decades, most of it here reporting in Washington, never come across anything as alarming in, in all that time as, uh, you know, understanding the extent to which the the senior national security establishment of this country, uh, you know, was terrified both of Trump's uh, effort to politicize uh, the nonpartisan U.S. military and, and to get it to serve as his own personal mm-hmm. Praetorian Guard of loyalists, and also to to do significant damage to America's international standing. And, you know, that was really summed up. And we obtained for the book a copy of uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, his resignation letter that he wrote to Donald Mm -hmm. Trump. He did not send it ultimately, but that he wrote in the aftermath of that disastrous uh, June 1st, 2020 Lafayette Square photo op. And in that letter, Milley's language is just, Unlike any document I've really ever seen, Uh, it says the chairman of Joint Chiefs said that he considered that Trump was doing, quote, grave and irreparable damage to the United States. He said that uh, Trump was, quote, ruining the international order. And he said uh, that he believed that Trump did not subscribe to many of the values and principles for which the United States fought in World War II. Uh, in essence, this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying that Donald Trump was the biggest threat to U.S. national security in the world. And I just, this is just a chilling thing. These are not Democrats or Republicans. These type of senior generals are, um, you know, they worship this constitutional notion uh, of an independent, nonpartisan military. And yet in the beginning, Peter, we remember when Donald Trump bragged about my generals <laughs> surrounded himself with, he loved people in uniform, right? They look like Hollywood casting. 
Exactly. And that's what he said, in fact, about some of them. They're straight from central casting. He thought that they were all like Patton. He, not not Patton in the reality, but Patton the movie. He wanted it to be, you know, these these sort of tough, gruff, you know, gruff guys, but tough, gruff guys for him. That's what he wanted. He thought that they would be his tough, gruff guys. And he didn't understand the apolitical tradition of the military. He even told this to John Kelly, the former four-star chief. He said, uh, you know, why can't you effing generals be like the German generals? <laughs> what German generals? The ones in World War II, meaning the Nazi generals. And J John Kelly, <laughs> flabbergasted by this, says, well, you know, they tried to kill Hitler three times, right? So, you know, it wasn't just that he was ignorant of history, but he was ignorant, more, most importantly, about the tradition of the American military, which doesn't want to be a Praetorian Guard, as Susan said, for a president or a commander in chief. They want to be, you know, a non-political, apolitical force in American society answerable to presidents of both parties. They're not part of an administration. They're, they're, they belong to the people. With all of um, the confusion in the White House, with all of Donald Trump's lack of knowledge or, or um, just lack of attention to detail, I'm still amazed looking back uh, at what he was able to get away with. I mean, he never released his tax returns. Uh, he never um, put his businesses in a trust. He kept making money from his properties while he was president of the United States. Uh, you know, he had clearly welcomed the Russian assistance in 2016 uh, and got away with it. He tried to bribe the president of Ukraine and got away with it. He unleashed a, an armed mob on the U.S. Capitol and got away with it. Susan, is he the ultimate Teflon president? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, mean, seriously. <laughs> you know, look, I, what I would say, Bill, is that he just he blew past so many of what we perceive to be the guardrails around the American presidency. And he showed in many cases that you could just, you know, keep on charging even after doing things that, that would be unthinkable and, and would sink any other president. And, you know, so for four years, right, so many of Trump's opponents were waiting for this accountability moment, uh, you know, this sort of fantasy of the knockout punch. Uh, and, you know, even January 6th, of course, uh, did not prove to be that. If anything, uh, I would say the Trump presidency uh, empowered not only him, but potential successors in the Oval Office. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly their fear of being impeached and removed from office, I think it would be much less. And, and I do think that the fear of impeachment acted as a certain constraint on American presidents up until now. But uh, Trump has shown that in the state of partisan division that we currently have, it's basically inconceivable that uh, any president would find himself on the losing end of a, a two-thirds majority in the Senate for conviction. And so, you know, basically impeachment is dead as a practical matter. And that was the main uh, vehicle mm -hmm. that the Constitution's founders uh, set out to uh, rein in and to hold accountable a, a rogue president. And so uh, I think, if anything, Donald Trump not only got away with a lot of stuff, but he showed other potential successors a roadmap for how to get away with things. The book is The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter, first to you, what does Vladimir Putin have on Donald Trump that explains Donald Trump's continued support of Putin no matter what he does? And, and, and as you point out in the book, this goes way back. He was a buddy of Putin or trying to get close to Putin long before he got to the White House. What's that all about? 
Well, he really was. You're right. It's not just about politics. Long before he went to Moscow to have the Miss America pageant there. He wanted to build a tower there. He got a lot of money from the Russians at times when American banks stopped uh, financing him because he couldn't be trusted. So he had a long history, a financial history with Russia. And then there's also, I think, the uh, the idea that basically he admires what we call strongmen. You know, he admires people who are like not just Putin, but Xi Jinping, uh, General Sisi in Egypt, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And he expresses, uh, you know, extraordinary affection or admiration for these autocrats, people who are generally not admired by Americans who care about democracy. It was so striking. Mm-hmm. At that Helsinki summit, with he stood next to Putin's side, and he, he basically said that he believed Putin when he denied the election uh, interference in 2016, taking his word over that of the intelligence agencies. And not only were reporters in the room, like Susan, who was there in Helsinki at the time, shocked, so was the uh, intelligence director that Trump himself appointed, Dan yeah. Coates. Dan Coates is a Republic, former Republican senator, former chief of staff to Dan Quayle, a conservative appointed by Trump, the director of national intelligence. And he watched this Helsinki press conference with increasing alarm. And he was telling people at that time that maybe it means that Putin really does have something on Trump. Here, this guy had access to all of America's secrets, all of the, the possible you know classified information and everything that the Americans knew about Russia. And even he thought it was possible that the president of the United States was somehow compromised by Russia, because it was so otherwise inexplicable. Yeah, it reminds me of the, what people used to say about J. Edgar Hoover, right? Nobody was willing to take him on because he had photographs, of <laughs> secret photographs of everybody. Uh, and to you, Susan, did Donald Trump really seriously consider making Ivanka his vice presidential running mate? You know, it's funny. This is actually an example in the book. There's a number of kind of stories like this that I would say we heard about at the time. And even in the context of living through the Trump presidency, it seemed too wacky or like a a crazy one off. And it actually became more worrisome as Peter and I worked on this book and got more reporting and realized many of these really out there ideas were, were much more seriously considered by Trump over a much longer period of time than we had understood when we first learned about them. Buying Greenland, by the way, is another example of that. But to the question about Ivanka, uh, yes. In the 2016 campaign, he kept pressing his campaign advisors on this, such that they even ultimately had to do a poll to assess her as a possible candidate and found out actually to, you know, the concern of the campaign is that she didn't poll as badly as some of the other people they were we're looking at. Ultimately, Ivanka had to be the one to say, oh, dad, you know, I, I don't think that's a good idea. And again, Donald Trump, when he was president, floated and actually seriously considered making Ivanka ambassador to the United Nations or get this hmm. president of the World Bank. When I read that, I just, I, I, I had heard that rumor, but you really brought it to, to light again, and I was uh, astounded. Well, we can't let uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser leave uh, without talking, as the great journalists they are, about Donald Trump and his treatment of and his treatment by the media. Uh, Peter and Susan, uh, Peter, start with you this time. If anything, any phrase, Donald Trump will be remembered for the phrases, I guess, fake news and enemy of the American people. But isn't Donald Trump really 
what is this all about? Is this just bluster? I mean, he's really a creation of the media and brilliantly used the media, right? Yeah, look, he's got a love-hate relationship with the media, right? Obviously, um, he does, uh, you know, say these things you just mentioned about us. He attacks reporters uh, generally, and he attacks reporters individually. Um, he attacked us when we were, you know, during, during the presidency. But it, but at the same time, he can't lay off the media because he he's just so addicted to it. He is addicted to attention, and media is the way he gets it. And he basically is so. Uh, uh, you know, covetous of it that he, he even told A's at one point that, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity as long as they don't call you a pedophile. That was his standard. As long as you don't call you a pedophile. That was the low bar. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's you know, and, and I've been, I was on, with him on Air Force One once when he just started yelling at me and telling me I didn't deserve to cover him and all that kind of stuff. So he has this hostility and so forth. But look, you know, Bill, you and I go back a long way. Susan does too. We've met and seen and covered plenty of presidents. We know that they all get mad or even sometimes despise the media, but they don't do what Trump did. I mean, what Trump did wasn't just calling out reporters he didn't like or individual stories he didn't like or saying the media is unfair. This use of the phrase enemy of the people and this other phrase fake news is meant to discredit the very idea of a free press, right? And he was asked why you do this once by Leslie Stahl. And he very upfront told her, because when you guys write something negative about me, I want to have discredited you so nobody will believe it. And that was the goal to discredit a free media in case it was, you know, wrote anything or said anything about him he didn't like. And that's a pretty, you know, corrosive policy because it has a greater effect than simply, you know, uh, uh, an individual news organization or reporter. It, it, it discredits the whole idea that there's such a thing as an honest and independent press. Despite going after both of you uh, during his four years in the White House, he granted you three interviews at Mar-a-Lago uh, in, in your research and writing of this book. Susan, what was that like? What was uh, sitting down with him like? What was his tone? Uh, what was the mood? What was the scene at Mar-a-Lago? And did you find him at all repentant? <laughs> I don't think that's a word in, uh, in vocabulary. <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting to go to Mar-a-Lago. We, we actually were down there twice, once in oh, the spring uh -huh. of 2021, and then again in November of 2021. And, you know, about three and a half hours. The first time the interview took place in the lobby of Mar-a-Lago, Trump was arranging this literally as a show. Uh, you know, so he's there as sort of a mix of banquet hall greeter meets Napoleon in Elba, right? You know, he he literally, uh, you're sitting there and you walk into the the main kind of gilded lobby of Mar-a-Lago and there's, there's a sign up on uh, as you walk in, uh, sign up for the Mother's Day brunch now. <laughs> right? You know, these are, you know, paying customers at Trump's club. And he wants you to sit there so that when the people come in, uh, he's showing off that these media figures are there. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. to, to kiss his ring or whatever. And in fact, you listen to the audio of this interview and he's sort of fulminating about the rigged election and, and thousands of dead people voting. And then, hey, hi, folks. Hello. Welcome. Uh, nice to see you. And, uh, you know, Kimberly Guilfoyle walks in in the middle of one of these interviews and, uh, you know, he she says, oh, will you come down and talk to the crowd at the, the cocktail party. He says, yes. Uh, we ask him, what's it for? When she leaves, he says he has no idea, but goes down nonetheless. And every night that he was around, 
he would make this show of going to dinner on the patio of Mar-a-Lago. And he would come up, his table was set off by a red velvet rope as if anyone mm-hmm. was going to, you know, take his table. And the people would get up from their dinners and give him a standing ovation. Oh, and wow. Then the night we were there, Trump would just sit down basically by himself. He had two young aides he had brought with him from the White House. Uh, they sat there. He didn't seem to talk to them at all. He was talking on the phone the whole time. Uh, and you know, it was just a very bizarre spectacle. Same thing with the interview. That's really a misnomer. It wasn't an interview uh, in the sense of here's a question and then here's an answer. Yeah. It was a monologue, uh, not dissimilar uh, in content to Trump's Twitter feed. You know, there were lots of insulting nicknames and and commentary about individuals. Uh, there was never kind of a sentence with a noun and a verb and a period. Uh, it was essentially sort of an extended ramble through Trump's mind at that particular moment. And final, finally, Susan, given what you, we know, uh, and thanks to you, we know a lot more about the Trump four years. Uh, it, would a second Trump presidency be, given what he was able to get away with in the first four years, be even more dangerous than the first? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think the short answer is very likely yes. Uh, there's this very chilling scene in the book. Uh, we're interviewing a senior national security official who had uh, observed Trump up close in the in the Oval Office who said that he was like the velociraptors in Jurassic mm. Park, you know, in the first movie where uh, the children run into the kitchen to hide and think they're safe, but then click the doorknob turns and you realize that the velociraptor has learned to open the door. And I think the point that this official was making was that over four years in the White House, Trump learned how to open the door. He got a much better sense of how to operate the machinery of Washington power and how to get what he wanted. And, um, you know, he wouldn't make the mistake as he saw it of hiring generals who weren't loyal to him. He wouldn't make the mistake of having a John Kelly as his chief of staff, as opposed to a Mark Meadows. And, you know, look, when you think about January 6th and, what a close run thing it was. That was the term that Mark Milley used for it, uh, recalling uh, Wellington's famous quote after the Battle of Waterloo and what a close run thing it was that he almost didn't beat Napoleon. Uh, you know, it was a close run thing. And with a different set of people around him and four years of knowledge, Trump would go after accomplishing many of the very, very disruptive uh, or dangerous or even illegal things that he pursued in his first term that he was constrained from doing. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are lessons that he learned, right, which he would probably uh, just be too happy to apply in a second term. God forbid, with that scary thought, uh, we will move on. And thank you so much. Again, congratulations on the book. We will have a link on our uh, the episode notes to today's podcast for uh, all of our listeners to be able to Check in and buy your own copy of The Divider. Highly recommend to Trump in the White House 2017 and 2021. Thank you, Peter Baker. Thank you, Susan Glasser. Uh, and uh, good luck with the book. Thanks, Bill. This is great. A lot of fun. Thank you so much. 
friends, you know, I'm like you, I'm sure. Every time we see the images of Ukraine on television, people being blown out of their apartment buildings, taking shelter in basements, fleeing to the borders, families breaking up. All of us ask ourselves, oh, my God, what can we do? How can we possibly help? Here's another idea. Carol and I are doing this, and I hope you will, too. Uh, let's help out the World Central Kitchen. Jose Andres and his people are on the scene like they are with every major disaster. Uh, they're on the job in Ukraine, in Poland, Moldova, in Romania, uh, helping the refugees, providing hot meals, and a whole lot more. They need our help. Uh, and that's one way to get help directly to the Ukrainian people. Go to their website at wck.org, wck.org, and provide whatever help you can. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's holiday special podcast. As we said, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser covered Donald Trump from the campaign trail all the way through the four years of his presidency. But Maggie Haberman was there from the beginning covering Donald Trump in his early years as a flim-flam New York developer. My big takeaway from Maggie Haberman's book, The Confidence Man, is that you can't really understand Donald Trump today unless you understand what he was like back then. And he hasn't really changed. He was a con man then, and he's still a con man today. Here she is. Maggie Haberman, uh, welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, so Maggie, I read on uh, Politico that you were a little nervous before the book came out because you weren't <laughs> sure anybody would like it. Uh, now, <laughs> you're number one on The New York Times uh, and number one on Amazon. Uh, you're feeling a little better about the I, book? <laughs> I, I, I'm very happy that it found an audience. I, uh, you know, I think, I think every person who writes a book is concerned before it goes out into the world. Um, but, uh, you know, it, but this is... It, you you know this bill because you read it, but it's a it's a different kind of book, and mm -hmm. I would, um, I was you know hopeful that people would understand what I was trying to do, which was describe 
sort of how the presidency of Donald Trump was foretold by the past of Donald Trump. Um, and and uh, enough people seem to have, so I'm happy. I think you made that point uh, over and over again, very, very clearly and very powerfully. Let me ask you first, I was really struck by the title to your book, Confidence Man. I mean, so um, I thought I knew what it meant. Webster says a confidence man is a person who tricks other people in order to get their money. You have covered Donald Trump almost exclusively for six years. Is that how you sum him up? Well, I think that there's two ways to look at this title, Bill. And one is certainly that everything about Donald Trump is about projecting confidence, which is, you mm-hmm. know, his MO. But the other is that, you know, we are we're talking about somebody who has a very long history of um, assuring people that uh, he is something that, that he isn't. Um, and I think definitionally that 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 meets the, the confidence man definition. And and tricking people, right? Using lies, using kind of exaggerations or kind of whatever to con yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, the, he 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 convinces people that he is something that he is not, and he convinces them, what be it his customers or be it you know, frankly, the voters who uh, are very hard to shake loose from him at this point. Whether it was intentionally through his own his own lies and his own artifice built brick by brick through news stories over the course of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, or whether it was through the art of television and The Apprentice. Um, mm-hmm. He has a very long history of of convincing people that he is something that he isn't and, and using that to his advantage. So you indicated earlier, and that was certainly my big takeaway from the book, is that you can't really, un- your, your point, I think, you wanted people to know, is you can't really know Donald Trump today or understand Donald Trump today unless you know him, where he came from, right? And how he got there. Tell, tell us a little about that. What, what are the threads that you see? So I, I tried to go back and look at, um, you know, some of the key influences on him. And, and, and those people were his father, Fred, you know, about whom a fair amount's been written. Um, Roy Cohn, about whom you know, endless ink has been spilled. George Steinbrenner, the former owner of the Yankees, who stylistically, um, you know, was a was a, a big influence for Trump. And then I think, frankly, there's been less attention on this and less understanding of it. But Roger Stone, without whom, yes. there really is no Trump presidency ultimately, um, for a variety of reasons. And so, I wanted to look at the people who shaped him, and I wanted to look at the forces that shaped him in New York City during a a period of time where corruption touched so many aspects of life, the media, the real estate business that his family ran, aspects of, of, of his own family's business, the political system in New York City, which was still very, very, you know, uh, derivative of the Tammany Hall era in terms of machine boss politics, and then his own idiosyncrasies as a person. And I, I wanted to show how all of those factors, you know, contributed to what he exported to Washington and to the Republican Party. The phrase that you use is frozen in time. There has been a, a real preserved and amber quality to him, Bill, that you can see when he speaks publicly. You know, his cultural touchstones are all from the 1980s. He talks about how many times he's on the cover of national news magazines. He talks about movies from that era. And most, most significantly, his view of crime and his sort of view of, of fear-based politics is stuck in that era. And it was an era in New York City 
when the crime rate was incredibly high and despite efforts and, and crime is, a, is, a, is on the mind of, of a number of voters nationally right now. Sure. But despite, but despite what people keep saying, it is at least in New York City, it is nothing like what it was back then. <laughs> and so, um, you know, he really learned about how you make these appeals to fear. And, and one thing that I explored, too, was, you know, in his reaction to the, the very famous Central Park jogger case, uh, in in 1989, which uh, in which a, a white banker was was found brutalized in Central Park after she had been on a jog, she was found several hours later. Several um, teenagers, all of color, were arrested, and Trump, even before you know any trial had commenced, took out a full page ad in the newspapers saying, "Bring back the death penalty, bring back our police," and it was a full page ad that glorified police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that talked about unshackling the cops. And he addressed, he takes aim at something Ed Koch, the mayor, was saying to people, which was that he didn't want the public to have, quote unquote, hate and rancor for these young men in their hearts. And Trump says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I want, I want people to hate them. You know, I, I want that. And it was as clear a guiding ethos as anything that Trump would articulate publicly, which was that hate should be a civic good. And I think that, as much as anything, is something that he exported as well. Uh, so uh, I thought I knew Trump pretty well, but reading about his M.O., if you will, as a young developer, I was really struck by th- this was a guy that we saw, you know, 20, 30 years later uh, in the White House. I want to read for our uh, listeners, Maggie, you quote Alan Marcus, who was one of his consultants at the Trump Organization uh, here, page 139, I'm reading from, quote, Trump was an intimidate. He, this is, he said this back then. Trump was an intimidating figure who wore people down. He was as overbearing with his own executives as he was with reporters, always pressing a fanciful narrative which exaggerated his worth, his ability as a manager, his relationships with women, etc. The narrative was more important than reality. Boom. That's right. That's right. And the narrative is what got him elected. The narrative is what he tried to control throughout four years of his presidency. Um, you know, he, he came to realize that uh, if he could convince people that what he was saying was real, the details and the facts didn't really matter. And, and I have to say, he lost the election, obviously, in 2020, despite what he says. I'm not sure that that would have been the case if he had handled COVID even remotely competently and seriously. He has appealed to a lot of people across this country with that narrative. Um, and it is it is a reminder of, you know, again, the power of the television medium. And I think it is a reminder for those of us uh, in our business, certainly in, in, in the print business and in what I do, the unintended consequences of, of some of what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two, two um, things that he excelled in as a developer, which again struck me as something he certainly continued through the rest of his career and certainly in the White House. Uh, let me ask you first, filing lawsuits. I mean, do you, do you have any idea of how many lawsuits this guy has filed in his professional career? There was a tracker that USA Today did at some point. I think it was in 2016. Um, and I think even then it didn't capture everything because he's obviously filed many more. Yeah. Um, it's it's hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds, and he's been and he's been and 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 I let me just asterisk that the hundreds and hundreds include not just things he's filed, but cases that have been filed against him or that he's been oh, a party right. to. He is he is 
the most litigious elected official that I have ever covered, um, certainly the most litigious president. And, and it is another one of these things that he has exported to um, the Republican Party is that you know, threats of lawsuits are, are much more prolific than they used to be. Right. And he makes it pretty clear, right? He's, you know, he admits he doesn't file these lawsuits because he thinks he's got a good case or he expects to win, right? There's Sometimes it's to cause pain. I mean, yeah. he, he was, yeah. when, when, he, when he talked to uh, Paul Fari at the Washington Post in 2016 about the lawsuit that he had filed against Tim O'Brien, who wrote the book Trump Nation, which you know, the, there was a single line in there that Trump zeroed in on for his lawsuit, which was about his net worth. And uh, Trump lost that lawsuit, uh, but Trump was very clear that he did it to cause Tim pain. And, and I, and I want to make clear, too, he does this also to, you know, chill other people mm-hmm. from taking on similar exercises. Yeah, I remember the phrase, uh, I did it to make his life miserable. (laughs) Very understated, yes. (laughs) And and the the other practice is just this total disregard for the truth. I mean, you open up with this incredible scene when he's 18 years old at the dedication of a bridge, and he's there with his father, and he talks about it, and he lies about the whole deal. Nothing about the anecdote that he tells is true, with the exception of he he gets. Uh, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but he 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 gets the man the, the bridge designer's age right. But he's talking about um, that's it. He's yeah. talking about you know this this moment, and he describes it fourteen years later. And then he did other times too, um, where he's attending the opening ceremony of the the, the dedication ceremony of the Verrazano Bridge connecting Brooklyn to Staten Island. And it was, you know, a lengthy project that had taken forever to actually push through. And it was, you know, Robert Moses, who is the subject of the power broker, the Robert Caro book, um, and who, who, uh, someone who, who Trump and his father, Fred admired, uh, was the master of ceremonies. And in describing, um, this bridge, this bridge engineer, uh, who is this very mild mannered guy? I mean, Moses just ex, you know praises him to the hilt as a as a mm-hmm. as a historic figure. He just forgets to say his name. And Trump later describes this as the rain was pouring down for hours, and everyone was congratulating each other. And there's this poor guy in the corner, and he gets the country the man's from, from uh, uh, wrong, and no one even pays attention to him, and no one acknowledges him. And it's it wasn't raining. It was incredibly sunny. You can watch the video of it. It's online. And it's just amazing how, you know, his comments, and I write about this, went unchecked right. for years because who would imagine somebody would get such details wrong? Yeah. Or even, yeah, particularly somebody, you know, that young, that impressionable. But also, right. he lied about the value of his properties, right? Uh, uh, as Michael Cohen testified in, uh, in front of Congress much later. Uh, he lied about his net worth, right? He, yep. he, he just lied about everything and got away with right. it. Right, he, he and got away with it. I mean, it's it's funny, you know. Michael Cohen's uh, House uh, oversight testimony really helped accelerate this investigation, which then became a lawsuit by the New York Attorney General against him um, and and his children and and their company. There were decades of this where, and I try to show this in the book. You know, a lot of people knew that he said things that weren't true. Reporters knew it. Politicians knew it. Prosecutors knew it. But he was sort of part of the system. And it's something that he said, actually, himself in 2016 about how I give to these politicians and, you know, they take my calls. And he wasn't wrong. 
Right. Uh, I was struck by the parallel uh, that uh, how the banks, as it was, again, lying about his net worth, and some of this came out, or, or you know, what he had put in a property or what it was worth. But the banks kind of stuck with him, right? Because he intimidated them. They were almost afraid to cross him. Uh, well, yeah, I would just, can I just, I just want to actually just add one asterisk to that. I think intimidated, but also I think that he scared them into, into believing hmm. that it was a greater risk to them financially to cut him loose. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that that was a big piece of it. So the parallel I was looking at, is that what motivated in 2016, so many Republicans who were afraid of cutting him loose. I think it's. I think it's part of it. Sure. I mean, I think that it's. He intimidated them not because they were afraid of what he would do to them directly himself, but what he could do to them with his voters, right? Who were also their voters, and that remains to this day. You mentioned Roger Stone. I was surprised. I didn't realize how early Roger Stone shows up in Donald Trump's life, but actually. Before he ran for president in 2016, um, he had he had looked at it right or been te tempted three times, uh, including one in 2011 when when you kind of took him more seriously than maybe you should have, as you point out. But Roger Stone was there urging him to run for president in 1988. Yeah, Roger Stone was uh, uh, with him in 1987 when uh, yeah. Trump when Trump was announcing. You know, unveiling the art of the deal, the book that you know mm -hmm. cemented this image of him that was totally contrary with who he actually is, uh, and was part of the myth making about himself. But Stone described to me by several people as the person who really came up with this idea of combining a book launch with a, a presidential candidacy float. And Stone goes with him to New Hampshire, where this mm. draft effort uh, that Stone has said he helped arrange uh, was being conducted by a, a local resident. Stone at the time was committed to another candidate, and he was uh, wearing a like Groucho Marx glasses, <laughs> the Trump helicopter. Um, he, he, he was in disguise, right? He, he was went disguise, in disguise. Yes. Um, and, and and then a year later, um, he he commissions from Doug Schoen, the the pollster who's done a ton of work for, among others, Mike Bloomberg. Um, this 95 page report about public opinion of Donald Trump in the country. And it's, you know, it's too late for Trump to run that cycle, but it, it seemed aimed at trying to sell Trump on a future in national politics. Realistically, yeah. you know, they would not be the first consultants to do that with, you know, a, a, a wealthy candidate, even one who's not as wealthy as he says he is. Um, but one of the things that was interesting to me about that poll was that it tested, it showed that there really was a vein for Trump to tap into, but it also mm -hmm. tested how people would react to Trump not paying income tax. And I was fascinated that they tested it that early. Right. Interesting. Uh, you know, the old phrase, by your friends, you shall know them, or by their friends, you shall know them. We talk about Roger Stone. But first of all, does Donald Trump have any friends? Uh, not in the conventional sense. My colleague, Alan mm -hmm. Foyer, wrote a great, um, a great piece in, um, uh, 2016 about Trump having no friends. And, um, and it was, and it was, you know, and Trump reacted very angrily to it. He has people who I think consider themselves his friends to a point, but he just doesn't experience, you know, friendship right. the way most people do. So what, whether we call them, I don't know, allies or hangers on, when you associates, look at the people yeah, around Trump, right? In yep. addition to Roger Stone, right? You've got Michael Cohen, you've got Steve Bannon, you've got Roy Cohn, as you mentioned. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman. I mean, 
these are like the most odious people in American politics. I was wondering, where's Dick Morris, right? How, how- Dick, he, he's around. He's oh. in the book. I mean, he's he's an he's an old family friend of the Trumps, and Dick Morris uh, is somebody to whom, during the twenty uh, twenty campaign, Trump it inst- instructed people to send Dick Morris polling data. <laughs> Um, and they, they, these these questions start showing up when the real pollsters, like Tony Fabrizio, are doing their work, and it's Morris mm-hmm. suggesting them. Yeah. So you got to admit, I mean, with that gang of, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say gang of thug, but that gang of uh, questionable characters, it says a lot about Trump himself, doesn't it? Trump is Trump um, gravitates toward a certain kind of person, and always has. I, you know, one of the things that Bill Barr told people. Um, in 2020, when he was leaving, was that, uh, you know, he remember he left in December, shortly before the presidency ended, but that, you know, he had, he had not really understood sort of why Trump seemed to prefer some of these characters and really gravitated toward him, toward them, but he does, you know, the Stones and, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think that goes back to that Roy Cohn infused uh, view of the world. Right. Uh, Maggie, uh, I want to ask you about Donald Trump today, because if you interviewed him three times for this book, you're still in touch with him and with the people around him. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Bot, and then we'll be right back. And we're back on today's podcast. Uh, very, very happy to welcome to the podcast Maggie Haberman, a uh, great, great uh, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporters covered Donald Trump at least for the last six years and beyond. Her new book is out. It's uh, number one in the New York Times, number one on Amazon, Confidence Man, The Making of of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. It's about 500 pages. It is worth every minute of every page. Uh, certainly uh, the most insightful book on Donald Trump yet to appear. Uh, Maggie, welcome back. Before we get back to Donald Trump, I, I want to ask you a little bit about you. I mean, you know, I knew Lou Cannon, or I should not use the past tense for Lou Cannon, good friend of mine. <laughs> who will always be remembered as Ronald Reagan's biographer, you know, Robert Cairo, LBJ's biographer. Uh, You've hitched your wagon to uh, Donald Trump. Any regrets? Well, I didn't think that it was an active choice of hitching. Um, (laughs) He was was the person who I was assigned to cover, and um, it was an assignment that not a lot of people wanted in 2016, or 2015, I should say. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that I have a perspective on him um, by virtue of having come from the same world he comes from in New York. And so, um, or aspects of it. And I, I thought that I had an, an obligation to to uh, share that. Um, and uh, so, no, I don't have any regrets. You, you told Michael Cruz at Politico that Trump was both your crutch and your salvation. No, I didn't say that. I said work in general, the job of journalism is my is my curse and my salvation. Uh, and that, that that was true well before Donald Trump came along. Uh, uh, thank you for the correction. I think that's true of all of us uh, in the field of journalism, yeah. Craig. But you have a strange relationship. I mean, he has insulted you on occasions, calling you a third-rate reporter, I believe, and, and worse. Um, and yet uh, he still is willing to talk to you uh, and treat you with some respect. 
how, how do you analyze that? I mean, he even called you in front of a couple of aides that referred to you as his psychiatrist. What I write in the book about that that line is just that, you know, it was meant to flatter and that he, you know, he says mm-hmm. it about a bunch of people and he, <laughs> um, uh, and he treats everyone like they're his, uh, uh, his psychiatrist. Uh, and so I think that that's one bucket. Um, you know, he's a subject who I cover just like I've covered, you know, a number of other subjects I've covered. Hillary Clinton, I've covered Rudy Giuliani, I've covered Mike Bloomberg, um, I've covered from more of a remove three presidents. And, um, you know, he's just somebody who interprets coverage differently than other people. And he's uniquely obsessed with the New York Times. And so um, I just think that it's, uh, uh, I think it's just something, something different. Well, I was struck by the fact that you said, I, I believe uh, correctly, that the first interview, your first interview with Donald Trump for this book is one that he requested before you had. They offered every almost every person writing a book, and there were many. Uh-huh. Yeah, books, yeah. Um, an interview with him, and uh, and I and I, I mean, initially, I thought this is not going to be worth very much, um, but actually, it was pretty interesting um, talking about his his history in New York, and I asked for two follow ups. Mm-hmm. Have you heard from him since the book was published? I have not spoken to him since the book was published. No idea. Have you heard from others as to whether he's uh, angry or? Um, I mean, he attacked the book. He attacked me. What is he focused on now? Most focused on now? The investigations. Do you think he's aware of the legal troubles that he recognizes how much legal trouble he's in? I do. I think that he I think he recognizes the Justice Department. Uh, investigation into the documents is serious. And 2024, do you believe he's already decided? Uh, I think he's backed himself into a corner where he has to. I don't know how genuinely he really wants to do this, but uh, I think he, he, I think he will declare a campaign. Right. Um, I was stuck also at the end of the book where you mentioned the phrase, I think it's on the very last page, after all of this, quote, almost no one really knows him. Boy, that's, that says a lot to me, right? He's a very complicated person. Yeah, and I, and I think a cipher in, in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, he, he and he does that intentionally. I've, I've, there, are, there are few people who are as, as messy and sloppy as he is in so many ways. He's extremely good at compartmentalizing. Uh, and... You know, he shows people, he shows different people, different aspects of himself. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 think of all the people who predicted that, you know, he would eventually accept what was happening after November 2020. These are people who worked for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was obviously a wrong take, right? So I think that, I think people want to believe certain things about him, and they're not always true. Do you assess Donald Trump's impact on American politics? How has he changed American politics? I think it's it's incredibly significant. I, you know, I mean, I think, look, it, and I try to trace this in the book, he took aspects of the Tea Party and rolled that into, uh, you know, his own form of, of Trumpism. You know, mm-hmm. the Tea Party didn't include this protectionism. Um, that, that he incorporated, um, he certainly picked up an aspect of 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 of, of nativism uh, and sort of nationalist paranoia. Um, you know, part of that he already had had for years, and he just sort of meshed it with existing Tea Party 
anger and energy and, and repackaged it and repurposed it, which is something that he's done a long time. But now, I mean, you know, he has he has remade the party in his image. He has stamped out the bulk of resistance to him um, in various places. And these midterms are going to be another test of, of his reach. Uh, and seems um, to have changed politics also in, would you agree, in that almost you can get away with anything now, right? You can say anything, you don't necessarily, uh, being caught in a lie is not necessarily um, a killer, right? Uh, or relationships with women or racist things that might be said. I mean, it's almost like anything goes after Donald Trump. I think it's worth remembering that the, the, the Bill Clinton years included some of what you're talking about in terms of yes. women, in terms of lying under oath, in terms and so forth. And I do think that that disillusioned a number of voters. It's But Bill Clinton, unlike Donald Trump, you know, accepts existing systems, <laughs> does not does not suggest they shouldn't apply to him, um, which is just a fundamental difference. That, I think, is what Donald Trump has uh, has has exported to his party is this belief that, you know, if you don't like a system, you don't have to accept it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just different. Uh, in terms of his relationship with women, I was struck uh, in the book by, you know, the, the three trophy wives, right? Ivana, and, and that was very hot and heavy for a while. And then he ceremonious, unceremoniously dumped her for um, Marla, uh, and then unceremoniously dumped her for Melania. Where are you in touch with her? Where is Melania these days? I mean, to me, she's just disappeared from the scene. I don't think she ever really liked the the presidency. I don't think that ever hmm. um, uh, made her particularly happy. Um, you know, I, I expect that if he runs, she will be supportive in public. Um, I don't think that I think that most of his family does not really love the idea of another presidential campaign. But I don't think that will stop him. Well, that was my next question. In fact, the others who have seemed to have disappeared and tried to put some distance from the day-to-day -day Trump drama are Ivanka and Jared. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. They, they've they've they're not visible with him right now, except for when the same email list that is pushing out his false claims about the 2020 election is also pushing Jared Kushner's book, um, and, and <laughs> that's that's where he's most visible. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know that Jared Kushner will be back if, if Trump runs again. Uh, and finally, you point out that uh, Donald Trump has not been very eager to join the former president's club. <laughs> no. Are they eager to have him? <laughs> no, no and no. It's, it's, it's mutual resistance. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to see a time when, you know, George W. and Bill Clinton and... Uh, Poor, poor Jimmy Carter, right? Could sit down and have a beer with Donald Trump. <laughs> like, I mean, what's what's amazing is that they can they can you know they can all do it with each other. You know, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. It's, it's, there's there's there is a camaraderie there, and it's just not Trump. Um, Trump told the head of the New York Real Estate um, Board of New York, who tried to get him to join, at one point, "I'm not a joiner," and I think that there's probably truer, truer, truer words never spoken about someone. About Donald Trump. Confidence Man is the name of the book, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Maggie Haberman, again, congratulations. A great amount of work uh, and, and energy and everything went into the book, and it really paid off. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, onward and upward. Thank you, Bill.
And that's it for today's special holiday podcast. Hope you've enjoyed this revisit with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser and Maggie Haberman. Such great books, my friends. Let me tell you, they're very, very important. The best books about the Trump presidency, as painful as it is to revisit. Uh, Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, of course, with The Divider. Maggie Haberman with Confidence Man. Uh, They are really worth your reading, worth plowing through. It won't be a plow, actually. It's a fun read. Uh, And there's a link in the episode notes to today's podcast for you to purchase a copy of both books and dig into them yourselves. And that's it. That's the last podcast for 2022. But we'll be back early in the new year on Tuesday, January 3rd, with a great interview with Hunter Walker, investigative reporter. You know Hunter, he's often on our uh, roundtable. Hunter Walker's investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo. Hunter's been digging into the January 6th report and the transcripts that came along with it. Uh, He'll give us all the highlights of that, plus his exclusive reporting on texts that he uncovered sent by White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows around the January 6th date, which tell a big story about Mark Meadows' role in the insurrection, never before reported by anybody. Hunter Walker, exclusive on the Bill Press pod. Uh, so for now, all you got to do is enjoy the New Year's weekend. Happy New Year. And come back and see us on Tuesday, January 3rd with Hunter Walker for the first 2023 edition of the Bill Press pod.